0: Hello and welcome to the EduChat podcast hosted by myself, James Brown. This podcast is brought to you by Discovery Schools Academy Trust and Partners to provide listeners insightful, honest and interesting reflections on educational themes in primary schools. During each podcast, we will explore through conversations some of the great practice and stories from the sector, as well as focusing on some of the challenges and issues faced by us today. We hope you enjoy our podcast and welcome your reviews. We also encourage you to share this podcast with friends and colleagues in your schools. You can find us at Discovery Trust on Twitter um, and also email us at podcasts at On today's podcast, we will be discussing um, getting exclusions right, which is such a key focus for so many schools in the country, not just primary schools. Um, And I'm really delighted to be joined by John Walker, who is um, from Jay Walker Solicitors. Um, who is going to be sharing his expertise and insights into um, where he feels schools are getting things right and not getting things quite as so right, and hopefully this can be useful for head teachers uh, and senior leaders and governors um, across the education system. It's nice to meet you, how are you doing?
1: I'm really pleased to be here, thanks for the invite.
0: No worries at all. So uh, first and foremost, just tell us a little bit about your background, how you've okay. come to be in the role that you're in now, um, and the sorts of work that you do with schools. Okay,
1: well for a long time I worked for local authorities for Leicester County Council, from 1998 on and off until about 2012. And whilst I was doing that, I'd spent a lot of time advising schools about exclusions, admissions, issues around data protection, um, dodgy photocopier contracts, all manner of things. Since 2012, I've been in private practice advising schools Pretty much about what I was used to do at the local authority, but also around academy conversions, development of multi-academy trusts, schemes of governance, schemes of delegation, a whole range of things. And I've also got experience about being a school governor as well. Okay,
0: fantastic. And do you work just locally? Are you just based in Leicestershire or would you work with schools elsewhere in the, in the region?
1: No, I work regionally um, across the East Mids, a little bit in the West Mids, but um, a lot of the time in Leicestershire, Derbyshire and Nottinghamshire. So around and about. Okay,
0: fab. So today we're going to focus a little bit on uh, getting exclusions right in primary schools. So recently, yep. uh, John came across and delivered a session with Uh, Head teachers in Discovery Schools Trust. We felt the information was so useful to be sharing with the sector. Um, So we're going to kick off straight away by just talking about getting behaviour policy right. So we understand that um, exclusions can quite often lead from, um, let's say, um, misapplication of behaviour policy in school or inconsistencies that appear. What are your experiences of schools kind of getting that right, where it works really well, and where are people getting that potentially wrong?
1: I think the policy is such a fundamental element of getting exclusions and good behaviour and management in schools right. And the focus that comes through from all of the guidance, everything goes back to the original policy. So the behaviour policy, the exclusions policy, whatever schools choose to call it, needs to actually reflect the needs of their own individual schools and their own local community. But it also needs to be something that's applied very clearly. And as a parent or as a pupil, more in secondary than primary, somebody needs to be able to read that policy and understand if I do X, the consequence will be Y. And the school, if something does happen, have got to follow that policy to the letter. So the policy's got to be flexible enough to accommodate all different types of responses in the school setting, but it's also got to be clear enough so that nobody actually misses out misunderstands about the consequence of doing or not doing something so clarity around the policy is a fundamentally critical thing not least because if you go right to the end of the process and there's been a permanent exclusion and it's gone through all the appeal stages and it ends up in the High Court the first thing the judge is going to do is say let's go back to the policy what did you say was going to happen and did that happen so
0: obviously, policies are developed with by senior leadership teams, by yep. um, by the staff within school, um, by governors, and adopted by governors. Are there some uh, places that schools can go to find exemplar uh, policies, or would you advise that you kind of build it from a from a starting point in your own
1: school? I think there's a mixture of things there. I think one is about recognising, in individual schools, what are the particular challenges for the cohorts who come to the schools but also about looking about what you actually want to achieve by the policy, which of course is good behaviour management. There are some great examples out there of schools who have got this right, but you can't just say, oh, there's one on the website, I'll pick it up and lift it and drop it straight into my school, because the context will be different. There's guidance from the DfE about what needs to be in a policy. There's. It's also interesting to look on the other side, so places like the Children's Legal Centre, and ACE, who are another educational charity who spend a lot of time representing parents, advise parents about what makes a good policy. There's certainly the ideas around clarity. One of my greatest bugbears when I see it in policies, and thankfully it's rarer now, is the concept of three strikes and you're out. Now that is an absolute no-no, because the third strike, if you like, could be something incredibly minor. But a few years ago, loads of schools had that in their policies. It just doesn't wash, it doesn't work. So you've got to think, what do you need to achieve and what particular issues are you trying to address in your school and your community?
0: Sure. So just take that into the context of an academy trust then. So you have um, some trusts anywhere between two and 102, I'm sure, soon um, schools across multiple geographies. Yes. So... uh, would it be appropriate to say that it would be advantageous for an academy trust for, I guess, legal precedent to have a single policy? Or would you have a basis like, a, uh, I guess, a template policy that can be applied in different locations to, uh, I guess, to um, uh, engage different parts of the community or to reflect yeah. different contexts?
1: I think what you have to have, and by law you need to have one, is an umbrella policy. For academy trusts that go, can go from 2 through to 19 years across a number of sites different cohorts, inner city area, urban, rural, the whole thing, you can't have one policy to fit to fit all. But you can have the trust aims and ethos embedded in this is what we expect from a behavior perspective. This is how we expect pupils within our schools to have that baseline, but then you can tweak it to individual school circumstances. So you can have a situation whereby if you've got a, um, a particular challenging Um, area in a school how you respond to for example a physical fight might be very different to if you've got an area a school where that the levels of violence if you uh, within the community effectively don't at a a lower level and what's the significance what's the significance of an act a behavioural act within that community and how do you respond to it what would be a reasonable response what would be something that people would expect you to do
0: yeah does that i just sort of play the devil here so yeah. does that mean that different types of behavior are considered more normal or acceptable variably across schools so you give an example there and, and i'm sure there'll be others yeah. about you know the breakout of a particular fight yeah. might be dealt with in a in school a by just a, a didn't relate it at all to an exclusion but in school b absolutely was and was very serious obviously that there are so many parameters around that absolutely
1: but but there are and it has to be about what is right within that particular school context so again i can give an an example of a school a secondary school situation where um, cannabis was found on a pupil in a school that was in a very rural community that it was a real case of shock horror and in that instance that led to a permanent exclusion. Whereas I know of many other examples of other schools where that is something that's not tolerated or not accepted but it doesn't necessarily lead to an immediate exclusion if someone says it's for personal use. Now clearly that's a secondary scenario rather than a primary but it all has to be relevant to the individual school's community. And what's acceptable and what's realistic.
0: I understand that. And I think it's certainly one of the political uh, talking points at the moment. I know the um, National Schools Commissioner and the DFE have been talking quite a lot about exclusions, and that may be some interesting reflection there in terms of national policy around you know, what's accepted from, from yeah. one community to another. So that's interesting. So let's let's move on to sort of talking about exclusions then. So when yeah. things have gotten, um, if you like, beyond the norm of your yeah. school's behaviour policy and there is a cause for for an exclusion, what's your experience of working with schools where um, that's not gone well? And, and what are the kind of common pitfalls or mistakes that school leaders are making and governing bodies perhaps yeah. making in terms of getting the exclusion process right?
1: I think it almost goes back to what I was saying right at the start around the policy. If there, if a school doesn't follow the policy that it says, then immediately there's a difficulty. But you can't always look at one policy because you've got other policies that interact with it. So you may have a separate anti-bullying policy. Your SEM policy is likely to be separate. There may well be an equalities policy as well. That actually you've got to look at the actual situation itself and work out... Which other policies fit into this? So a for example, if a child has autistic spectrum disorder and is very um, and the sensory element is really significant, the fact that someone brushes by a child and catches them on their arm might evoke a quite significant and um, an instinctive response of lashing out. A school that says in its behavior policy, any um, assault on, against a teacher will be treated as an exclusion, fixed term or permanent, that then comes into conflict with the Equalities Policy or the SEM Policy. So you've got to look at how those policies fit together. I think the other thing that tends to happen is that people focus very much on the impact of what's happened. And they will look at trying to get the, gather the evidence about who said what, who did what, how did it all fit together to see the seriousness of the, the, the circumstances. What people have got to do then is go on and take it that step further and say, but what's the consequence of allowing that pupil to return to school or not allowing that pupil to return to school? Because the test is, is the behaviour such that it warrants an exclusion? And if it does, then what's the impact of that person effectively being removed from the school site? on a temporary or permanent basis. So it's that second part of the process that people tend to, um, it's a common failing that people forget that's the other other legal bit of the test that's got to be applied. So if
0: we just explore, and I know many listeners will already be um, aware, but for
1: those that aren't, what are the different options available to schools in terms of exclusions? Sure. You've got two choices. One is a fixed term exclusion. And a fixed term exclusion is either for a morning session or an afternoon session or a day or a number of days. And you can have up to 45 days fixed term exclusions over the course of an academic year or it's a permanent exclusion. Permanent exclusion basically is what it says where somebody is permanently excluded from the school site and eventually taken off the role before they're educated at either another school or another institution.
0: OK, so if a pupil is admitted into a school partway through a year, say at Christmas yep. a term in, is that 45 days prorated backwards?
1: No, nope, it's still 45 days. So it's still days. 45
0: days regardless of the length of time Forty- they in school for that year?
1: But if they've already come into a school and they're already carrying, say, 10 days from previous fixed term exclusions, that comes with them. Sure. Okay. And process then. So how does the process work? I think it's worth saying at
0: this point, of course, this is all the worst case scenario. School should avoid and and seek to avoid exclusion wherever possible and certainly not what we'd like to work towards in our schools, but what would be the process for school and and is that consistently uh, carried out and how does that link to the appeals process and so
1: on? Okay. I think it's the difference between fixed term and permanent is really important to understand. Only a head teacher of a school can permanently exclude a pupil. A fixed term exclusion can be done by a deputy or by an assistant head. In the absence of a head, if, and I'm not talking about whether the head's away on an afternoon course or anything, if it's long term sickness or a secondment, then a designated deputy can permanently exclude. But if it's a permanent exclusion. The head teacher has got to have the evidence available to them in order to actually weigh up how does this behaviour, how does this action fit with our policy? Is it something that is so extreme that it would have a detrimental effect on either the pupil, other pupils in the school, or, or other people in the school, i.e., staff, if that pupil was returned? To do that, the head's got to make an investigation head doesn't have to investigate themselves and in many ways it's better to get a deputy to actually undertake that investigation because the head's then got to weigh the evidence up almost like a judge to decide where does it fit on the balance and if there's a dispute about who did what and pupil a says no i didn't hit him first and pupil b says no i didn't hit him first then it's got to come down to a decision between whose evidence does the head prefer And that can take into account what other people saw, whether that's pupils, members of staff, or members of the public. But gathering that information in a fair way, trying to avoid any opportunity for collusion between pupils, making sure that statements are taken down in the same process, all of that really matters. So that somebody who looks at it from outside can go, yeah, that's a fair process. And in terms of a rule of thumb, it's it's if somebody else, if an unconnected observer came in and looked at what had happened, would it feel fair?
0: Okay. And about about the storage of that information then. So is there I presume there are certain legalities and processes around once the investigation is carried out, it needs recording in a particular way, storing in a particular place for a period of
1: time? There's quite a bit of flexibility about recording. So again, depending on the age of the pupil and depending on the situation, you can have a situation where pupils are writing their own statements. You can have a situation where pupils are effectively dictating statements to teachers or other members of school staff. What you wouldn't want is a scenario where half the kids write their own statements and the other half are written or dictated to members of staff. Because, again, you look at that as an outsider and you think, well, hang on a moment, why was that done? Is there a particular slant? Mm -hmm. So in terms of the process, as long as it's consistent and as long as it's fair and as long as it stands up to objective scrutiny, it doesn't really matter. The records themselves then have to be kept secured and, and kept in effectively a lock cabinet until the whole exclusion process is finalised and then it depends at the end what happens in terms of how much information goes onto the file. In certain extreme cases the police may well request information from the school if it's a, a, a an assault or a drugs offence or a weapon is involved, they're the kind of things where the school would then want to help the police with prevention and detection of crime. So we sometimes have to hand information over to the police, subject to certain, um, the police have to follow a process to request it from us, they can't just turn up at reception and say, hand it over. Sure. Okay, really
0: interesting, thank you very much, I'm sure um, it's refreshing for listeners to have some re-clarification, particularly if this is not a frequent yeah. occurrence in your school, um, and let's hope it's not, obviously. Totally. Um, so I, I, what I'm interested in, in talking about is, then, so okay, i, I you know, a parent, I'm a parent now, and a child's been caught up or has been yeah. a perpetrator in an incident um, and um, a child Ow. has been um, permanently excluded. Yes. And, um, and I'm really not satisfied, which I suppose yeah. is an obvious position for a, for a parent to sort of take a stand on, that the process was conducted fairly or that the, the behaviour didn't warrant an, a permanent exclusion. What are my rights as a pupil and as a parent to raise
1: an appeal? I think you have to roll that back just by one step. Because after the head has actually undertaken the whole investigation process, and after all of the statements have been taken, and after all of the information has been gathered, before a permanent exclusion can come into play, the head must sit down with the pupil, and depending on the age, with the parents, or at least give uh, the opportunity to do that, so that that pupil can give their side of the story for the evidence that's been gathered against them. It's not good enough to say, we spoke to the the pupil right at the start, before we'd spoken to anybody else, and then off we went with it, the decision to exclude must be done when that person has had an opportunity to hear all the evidence that's been put against them.
0: But that doesn't automatically mean there's going to be an agreement with the evidence, does it? Not at all. But if they not my little boy. No, absolutely. He's not, an angel. Not my angel. Yeah, no. absolutely.
1: Don't recognise the child that you're talking about. Not like that at no. home, etc, etc. But that's why it's so important because one of the rules of natural justice, which underpins the, the legal process for exclusions, is that everyone has the right to know the evidence against them and failure to do that is a breach of human rights, and failure to do that is a breach of natural justice, which means the exclusion itself is then in jeopardy. Forget what actually happened, if the process isn't followed, the 2017 guidance means that everything else is then in jeopardy. Okay, great. So uh, so, so, so I really do want to appeal. Let me know really what happens for the school, what happens for the parent? For a permanent exclusion, After the head's made the decision, it must go to the governing body or the Academy Trust in order for that to be reconsidered. And at that point, the governing body or the Academy Trust are looking at the whole process that led to the exclusion. They're looking at the investigation. They're looking at what the allegation was. They're having a bit of a way up again about what the evidence was like. So I can think of an example from last year where parents... And the pupil said oh no 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 we were made to give the statements in that way uh, the people said I was taken into a room and the deputy head sat there and said I'm gonna write down what you say and what that deputy had wrote down wasn't what I said so the next day I came in with my mum and dad and there's the statement about what really happened you like, okay and so the governors are gonna then be asked to actually effectively adjudicate on the quality of the kind of evidence so at the governor's discipline committee meeting it's really important that the governors have got all the information that's been gathered by the school any response from the pupil and from their parents and anybody else that they have may decide to throw into the mix they've also got to then look at is the decision that the head made a reasonable decision now when I use the word reasonable there it's got a legal connotation and a reasonable decision can be you and I could um, witness the same event, and you could think, no, 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 that's so extreme, it warrants a permanent exclusion, and you could be right. I could see it and think, no, 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 that's not okay, but it should be a 10-day fixed-term exclusion. I can also be right, because on the scale of reasonableness, it's about, is our thinking behind it something that an impartial observer could have a look at and go, yeah, I can see how you can come to two different conclusions on the same facts. So the governors have got to look at it from that point of view. They're not there effectively to reassess the head's decision. They're there to say, is that decision something that a reasonable person could have made given the information that was available? So in
0: some respects, it's a ratification of the decision. But in some respects, it might lead to challenge because
1: they don't feel the head teacher has acted in a fair and reasonable way. It has to be a review. It can't... they're not there to ratify, they're there to review and the the process of review is very important. It also might be that the governors sit there and say well actually we think something's gone wrong in the way that they had investigated. So for example it could be that when four pupils who witnessed something were sat in a room before their statements were taken one of the teachers in the room had to leave because there was an incident in the corridor had to go out which left the four pupils on their own effectively to collude things happen it's a you know it's a busy day in school school, it's you know but in that scenario because there's the opportunity for collusion if the head hasn't addressed it in the meeting with the pupil and the parents in the report to the governing body the governor should pick the head up on that that's not because they are not being supportive of their head but they need to be quite forensic in their approach and they need to say If things have gone an apple pie order, great. If things have gone a bit off kilter, if the governors pick it up, question the process, they can put it right. Only the governors can do that. If it gets to the independent review panel, which is the next limb of the appeal, the independent review panel doesn't have that power. But the governors have still got the power to say, actually, yeah, we see it could have been done a bit better, but actually taking all that into account, it's still the right decision to permanently exclude. Mm -hmm. And the role of governors in querying what happens to uh, that part of the process is so important to making the final decision a robust and unchallengeable decision. Governors don't do their heads any favours by being passive. Sure, sure. And there are some examples of that, I'm sure. There are. Um, well, what happens next, then? I mean,
0: I, I, I really don't like talking about these sort of extreme elements, but I'm sure headteachers benefit, or well, listeners certainly will benefit from knowing, if they've not been through this process before, kind of where this might go. So, yeah. OK, I'm a parent, I, I, I Fix them, there's a permanent exclusion, Yeah. a teacher's explained the situation, I'm not happy, governing body have been there, made a reasonable judgement around is this right yeah. or not, her headteacher if appropriate, Still not sure, feel like this is illegal, these are legal precedents, yeah. if you like. So where do, where do we go next? If the academy board or the local governing body aren't judged to have made a fair decision, a reasonable decision, I beg your pardon.
1: After the governing body have made their decision, and if it is to uphold a permanent exclusion, the clerk must write out to the parents explaining why they didn't choose to overturn the head's decision. And in that letter, they've got to give certain information, and it's information about what happens next which is an independent review panel. I'll talk about that in a moment. They've got to tell them that parents have got to make that application in writing within 15 school days. They need to explain that if parents feel that there's any kind of SEN, whether that's diagnosed or undiagnosed, that they can ask to have that considered by the independent review panel. They've also got to be told that there is a route of complaint to the Secretary of State for Education, in some cases, and for judicial review, if the process has been flawed. So there's a lot of information that has to go out in that And just before we move on to the
0: independent review panel then, where where is that information available to schools and parents?
1: It's within the 2017 exclusions guidance. There's information on the DfE website and all local authorities, whether it's for an academy school or not, local authorities should have that kind of exclusion information available on their websites. I think it's also important to bear in mind that the local authorities' obligation to excluded pupils applies whether it's a child in a maintained school or an academy school. So on the sixth day, after a permanent exclusion, responsibility for educating the child returns to the local authority, whether it's an academy, whether it's maintained. And information about children who have been excluded needs to be fed into the local authority because they still have the obligation for securing suitable education going forward. Sure,
0: sure. So that's the independent review panel then. So who, who makes up that panel?
1: It, as it says, it's independent and it's independent of the school or the academy trust or the local authority. On the panel, you've got to have either have a current head teacher or recently retired, so really between three to five years maximum. Sure. And ideally, that person should be of the same um, education phase as the child who's been excluded. It has to be a chair of governors on the panel as well, and then a layperson. And the layperson is the chair, and the layperson is somebody who it could be a head who is more than five years retired, it could be a parent, it could be someone who is a school governor but is not sitting in, in a governor's role, or it could be somebody who's put themselves forward as a volunteer and has gone through the training and is actually able to effectively chair. And who calls panel. the panel? Who forms the panel? The In a local authority maintained school, the local authority as the admission authority have to... And the responsible body have to form the panel and an Academy Trust. The Academy Trust have to find suitable people and have people who are trained in order to be able to sit on the panel. It's useful as for an Academy Trust perspective to actually be sharing training and sharing um, potential panel members across a number of trusts or other schools because actually trying to get wholly independent people who are prepared to come and sit, hear appeals can be something that can be quite a challenge. Mm. So again, local authorities have got a traded service where people can buy back into it, and there's other some private companies out there who are doing that as well at the moment. Sure. Okay.
0: So the, the, uh, the case is heard by the independent review panel, Yep. And,
1: and the decision at that point is? The independent review panel have a really onerous job, and part of the reason why policy matters so much, and if there's a, a thread that runs through this, it's policy. The 2017 exclusion guidance issued by the dfe builds on the information the guidance from 2012 but the huge focus of that guidance is all about procedure it's not necessarily about the act and the event itself and i'll give you an example if i may about how this would this impacts if i go back to before 2012 secondary school situation it was a a serious um, incident in the school where a pupil had drawn a knife and it was everyone acknowledged it was a serious one. At the Governor's Discipline Committee meeting, the chair of the three panel governors was rushed to hospital, had to go to A&E, um, very, very ill. The two governors continued. It came to the independent appeal panel, as the review panel was then, and the independent appeal panel took into account the seriousness of the offence. They took into account that there'd been an admission to it, and they also heard from the parent's representative that actually this was an unlawful exclusion because the panel wasn't quorum. The Independent Appeal Panel said, no, on the facts, yes, there's a procedural flaw, but we're gonna put that right, because they have that power to put procedural flaws right. And as a result, the permanent exclusion was maintained, off it went. If that happened now, that independent review panel can't put the procedural flaw right. So if there's something that's significant that is has happened as a result of the investigation, that's happened as a result of the process, that's happened as a result of a flaw at the Governor's Discipline Committee meeting, irrespective of what the actual event was, the independent review panel can't put it right. So it could lead to that decision being quashed effectively overturned and being sent back almost for a rehearing or effectively for reinstatement. So getting the process right is very important, but also understanding the limits on the independent review panel's powers is also important. Mm. They have to follow process and procedure. The panel are expected to follow judicial review procedure. Now, as a lawyer, I've dealt with a few judicial, judicial reviews over the years but I nearly always go and get counsel's advice and go to a barrister for that kind of advice because it's really specialist. What we're expected to do is have panels of lay members to suddenly understand how judicial review works and the principles that underpin it. And there are a few pages of guidance in the exclusions guidance, the leading textbook on judicial review, Is over a thousand pages, so it's a real, exactly (laughs) Uh, a real slappy thing to read at night. But that's the real problem with the process: is that you're expecting there's a great expectation on independent review panel members to weigh up the legal process that's followed. And as a result of that, if you can show as a school that you've followed your policy, taken the action that you said you were going to take, gone through all the necessary steps in a fair, transparent, and just way. The independent review panel should hold no fears, really. It's where something's gone wrong and it's not been picked up earlier and not been put right that leads schools to be at risk. Okay,
0: Really detailed. Thank you very much. I know listeners all have found this incredibly useful. And there's more to come. (laughs) So I'm really... Keen that we reflect back on the individual, so back on the child Absolutely. here, and I'm a child that has been permanently excluded regardless of this process because this doesn't all yep. happen within six days oh, gosh, or however no. long, um, and actually my education is at stake, um, yep. or my child's is. So, but I can see that's been really tricky, so uh, from a school leadership perspective, what's your advice and guidance on managing the impact back at school? So ensuring the learner is well catered for. Yep. In addition to also some of the really difficult things around uh, staff morale, yep. staff safety, um, the feelings of the community. Because obviously this is stuff that just doesn't um, doesn't kind of fly under the radar. Totally. How do you? What's your advice on that?
1: I think it's really I we over all the years the twenty odd years I've, I've done this kind of work. I've never ever seen a school who wants to exclude a pupil. It's always the last resort. Sure. It's always at the point where there is they're, they're frustrated, there's nothing else that can be done, measures have been put in place, and it just hasn't worked. And I think part of the, why well, it matters, again, about policy, and I know I sound like a crack record about policy, but if people know what their expectations are, if it's really very clear about what how behaviour is managed in a school, how behaviour is perceived by the wider community. It makes following that and having a transparent process much simpler. The worst scenarios are where people say, ah, but somebody else's son or daughter was treated quite differently, even though it was the same set of circumstances. And being able to say, no, we are very consistent. It doesn't matter if the child is... um, if it's a governor's son or daughter because quite often people say oh, if it was so and so, so they wouldn't have excluded but it's about being able to say no we have a consistent policy that's absolutely applied and also something that makes sense i've seen some um, policies and some information on school websites which is really difficult reading it's really hard to understand what the sanctions are and how they're applied and who decides what they are and how long does something stay on a pupil's record all of that feeds into this sense of um potential unfairness in application so i think the consistency of the application of the policy really does matter and i also think it's important that staff know that actually these policies are there to protect other um, pupils in the school but also staff in the school and that actually we've got to be intolerant of behaviour towards our staff in schools it's not acceptable and that again needs to be made very very clear to pupils and parents and carers that this is not how it is that this is not going to be tolerated. Pupils who've got special educational needs we know they account for a huge proportion of children who are permanently excluded and that is not good that's not good by any stretch of the imagination because it means that some of the most vulnerable children are at risk of exclusion and we see it follow through in the stats. But again, if, and this goes back to talking about other, part, other parts of the jigsaw, other parts of the policies, if you've got a good SEM policy that talks about how additional support is accessed, how additional support is resourced, how it all fits together, and you're following those policies, it means that you're likely to be reducing the number of SEM children who are at risk of exclusion. And the guidance says that heads should do um, almost anything other than exclude a child with SEM. Mm. So from a staff morale from a community morale from an understanding point of view it's about that clarity and it's about that transparency and it's about saying in this school we want to encourage good learning good teaching and good behavior and to do that we will police it and we'll police it vigorously and fairly and fairly yeah and fairly yeah
0: and i suppose the 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 overarching message here is that the school is acting in the interest of the safety of its learners absolutely and so actually ...regardless of the types of um, potentially negative um, feelings of parents and other stakeholders... ...the knowledge that the head teacher needs to be... ...or the senior leadership team team needs to be courageous enough to speak out about the openness... ...with openness about their decisions based on correct policy.
1: And being able to say to anybody... ...because of course the difficulty is schools can't respond. Mm. Schools can't respond to the conversations at school gates by parents... And the allegations of unfairness, and that teacher always had it in for that person's child, because, from a professional point of view, you can't, and from a data point of view, you can't say, well, actually, what was said was X, Y, and Z. But what you can do is make it really clear that this is how we approach teaching, learning, behaviour, and well-being in schools, mm-hmm. because a disruptive pupil, as I'm sure you know better than I, can cause mayhem in a class, mm-hmm. and the disruption that causes for other learners has an impact on their outcomes, on their attainment, on a a whole plethora of things. Absolutely. So that clarity of the schools, I'm not a huge fan of mission statements, because sometimes I think they're just put up because you've got to have a mission statement. But something that genuinely underpins and summarises what the values of a school or a trust is, is really invaluable in this scenario because actually you say this is what we want to do and the only way we can do it is if everybody is applying the same standards. Yeah. If everyone's on the same bus, everyone's running in the same yeah. direction, all the sorts of things. Absolutely.
0: Too. And I suppose therefore the importance for school leaders here is about the consistent application of this. Yeah. And like you say, these are worst case scenarios, these Absolutely. are a small minority of pupils in... That's, we'd like to think a small narrative, a minority of settings, yeah. But in order to be able to avoid getting to this place, yes. it's about, I guess, proper planning and and, 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 and proper staff training and, and so on. So, particularly in the yes. turnover of staff in schools is quite high. Yep. So making sure this is robust and um, regular reminders of where we stand and, and what we're what we're attempting to do as a school.
1: And I think as well, it's um, you know, permanent exclusions is the far end of the spectrum. But a well-deployed use of fixed-term exclusions with other behaviour and other management techniques can help sort of avoid the need to actually get to a fixed term. And having that variety of approaches that are graduated, individual-focused, they're the things that all make a difference. Mm, Sure.
0: Um, So I think... I want to keep these podcasts fairly limited yeah, in terms absolutely. of time. So we've gone for about half an hour now. So oh, just, okay.
1: to, I want to bring
0: this back. I think there's, um, I know there are some absolutely incredible kind of experiences and lessons and, yeah. and things that schools need to, be, um, need to be considering here. And we could go for at least a day, yes. I'm sure, <laughs> on a lot of these things. And we could go into, we've not really touched upon fixed term exclusions and yep. reintegration. I'm sure we can revisit that another time. What I'm interested to know is how schools can find out more about you and about your work okay. um, and, um, and and how we can get in touch with you and, and so on and so forth.
1: Sure. I mean, the work I do is, um, as I say, I'm a solicitor. I work independently. I also work with Flint Bishop up in Derby. But my main website is www.schoolslegalsupport.co.uk. And on there, again, almost similar to the podcasting, building up re- additional resources free information, the ability for schools to actually sort of like dib in and dip out to get more information about it. But also the DfE website has got good information about behaviour management, exclusions, etc. And local authority sites have got similar kind of information. I'm always happy to have um, a, an informal conversation with heads. Um, and please feel free email me, john, j-o-h-n, at jwalker.co.uk. But as I said, always happy to have a chat.
0: Fantastic, and I'm I'm convinced that there'll be a few kind of emails coming your way, and hopefully visits to your website. And I'm sure I speak on behalf of other school leaders and saying this has been a really valuable insight into the sorts of work that you're busy doing on a daily basis. Yep. But the wealth of experience you bring from having worked in a, a number of phases and settings across a, a region is really powerful for for schools. And it's that sort of you know. That, um, that insight that schools really need um, to, to make sure they're navigating correctly through this um, potentially difficult place. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for the no, thank you be. very much. Thanks for listening to today's. Uh, Uh, EduChat podcast it's been my pleasure to host today's conversation John thanks so much for your input it's been amazing Uh, and I know uh, school leaders and listeners will find it really valuable Um, our next podcast is going to focus on um, high quality early uh, years provision and I'll be joined by Tim Gilbert one of the lead professionals within Discovery Schools Academy Trust so do keep an eye out for that one being released Uh, don't forget that you can help us improve uh, these podcasts by emailing us at podcast at discoveryschoolstrust.org.uk and also please leave reviews on our relevant podcast sites Um, really helps us to improve what we're doing and also know that these are adding value to the system Uh, you can follow us uh, on twitter at discovery trust um, and also you can visit our website at discoveryschoolstrust.org.uk you've been listening to edu chat podcast by discovery schools academy trust and um, from myself james brown goodbye